This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Heeks. Welcome back, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Heeks, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Boy, do we have a special episode for you all today. We have... None other than Mr. Steve Bartilla on the line tonight, and we're going to get into not one, but two whole podcasts with Steve covering a multitude of topics. Uh, This is going to be segment number one. We're going to talk about, throughout both topics, staying the heck out of your property when needed, positive and negative enforcing of whitetail behavior, uh, studying deer, their tracks, etc., big buck secrets, early season brassicas, Social stress levels of deer, patterning big bucks during the rut and the second rut, making the shot happen, early, mid, and late season stand choices from Steve, and just so much information, guys. Total, we have, I believe, two and a half hours for uh, the two segments. So this is segment one with Steve Bartilla, and we are pumped to bring it to you. This is awesome. Trust me. Uh, Before we get into that, I want to thank the listeners for coming back once again. We love you guys and really appreciate your support. Been leaving, uh, seeing a lot of great reviews on the iTunes uh, Habitat Podcast uh, review section up there. Thanks so much. I'll send you guys some decals for that. And, you know, all of our stuff, guys, at HabitatPodcast.com. We have gear up there. We have all of the podcasts. We have a journal up there. We also have our land plan consulting services. All kinds of stuff at HabitatPodcast.com. So please check that out when you have a few free minutes. This episode is brought to you by Morse Nursery. We are back on board with Morse Nursery. Their website is morsenursery.com. And what we're going to start out talking about with them 
is prepping for your tree orders right now. It's October, and there's a catalog at Morse's website. I would check that out and get an idea of what you guys are looking for for your property for the spring order. Uh, a lot of the times, we've mentioned this before, a lot of the times people call in March and April to order their trees, and most nurseries have sold out or are booked out by then. So I would urge you to check out the catalog at morsenursery.com, pick out what you want, and start thinking about ordering. We're going to have some great info from Morse coming up on a podcast. So hang around for that, and we may even have some tree sale details for HP listeners. Next, this episode is also brought to you by Realtree, United Country, Lake States Realty and Auction. That is the new Stony Creek Realty name for Chad Thalen. Chad's been on the podcast a couple times. We've also done our trivia nights with him on our Facebook. If you guys don't follow us on Facebook or follow uh, Realtree United Country, please check them out. Very exciting news. Chad's working with Realtree and the United Country team who combined sell the most amount of recreational property out there. And he has some big things in the works. So if you're looking to list your property, give Chad a call. The last three or four listings that we've shared on here are gone right away. He's selling them very quick. So if you're thinking about selling, give Chad a call. Check him out. Otherwise, check him out on Facebook at Realtree United Country, Lake States Realty and Auction. And then, guys, I just want to give you a little update. If you follow our Instagram and Facebook, you saw that Brian and I have been out hunting a little bit. Um, I was lucky enough to pull the plan together on a nice opening day doe. Uh, that whole story is in our Instagram and Facebook stories, as well as um, some pictures up there soon. But I just want to give you all a heads up. I was able to make a nice shot and, and fill the freezer. And then, uh, actually, my car broke down when I was bringing the deer home the next day. Um, leaving the property. So I actually had a tow truck pulling my vehicle with a deer on the roof. Again, pictures online, it was hilarious. But I, I wish everybody luck who's out. The weather is beautiful, and it's early October, guys. Just be safe and heed some of Steve's advice in this podcast. We talk about sanctuaries a lot in this segment. Just keep that in mind while you're hunting this fall. Your property will hunt better, you know, treating some stuff as a sanctuary and using perfect access. So I know we always talk about that, but I wanted to hit that point once more. Without further ado, I want to thank the rest of our partners. We have Killer Food Plots, Packer Max Cultipackers, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, where you'll see my doe kill soon, Huntwise, Realtree, United Country, Lake States Realty and Auction, Morse Nursery, and Sound Barrier Hunting. We appreciate the support from our sponsors and partners. Thank you guys so much. Give them some love. Check them out online and tell them the Habitat Podcast sent you. Now, let's get into it with the Steve Bartilla. Welcome back, guys. Another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have our co-host Brian on the line and a very special guest today, Mr. Steve Bartilla. How are you today, Steve? I... If I was any better, it should be illegal. Things things are real good, real good, gentlemen. Yeah, that's not bad for a Monday, sir. No kidding. Yeah. Well, when you do when you do what I do every and this may come, like for the love of God, I hope this doesn't come off as a complaint as a glorious thing. <laughs> every day is the same. Now, I don't have weekends. 
because or or every day's a weekend when I mean this is gonna sound so incredibly cheesy, it's not even funny, but yeah, it's probably good that we start off on the cheese factor so your audience knows what they're getting into here. <laughs> um I'll, I'll tell you what, it, it is it is so dang true. You do what you love, you never go to work. Ever. It took me it took me twenty years to be able to do to do it full time exclusively, but you do what you love, you never go to work. And that is that is so darn true, it's not even funny. And I'm going to start right out by saying thank you, because if it isn't for your followers, for you guys, I'm still working a real job. And you know what? I really like what I do. And the support that, for whatever reason, a whole bunch of people went ahead and threw me on their shoulders and decided that, decided that hmm, we're going to pay a little bit of attention to him for some reason. Without that, I ain't here. And that is never, ever, ever lost on me in any way, shape, or form. That's truly, truly great to hear. Uh, it's kind of refreshing. You know, I'm I'm the type of guy who really doesn't follow or, or really track along too well with people who are super confident or cocky or, you know, who just come off kind of like that. And you, my friend, you are completely opposite which is why we love following along and and that just explains it right there your comments just just now so that's great I, you know i i appreciate that but here's here's probably one what i think might be one of the best tips i can give the listeners here and this actually goes all the way back to my mom taught me this when i was growing up if you gotta jump up and down wave your arms above your heads and scream hey look at me this is who i am guess what you ain't <laughs> if you gotta jump up and down and do all that waving and acting like an idiot, you're not. Because if you really were those things, you don't have to jump up and down, wave your arms, and act like an idiot. People already know. Right. Now, um, and I really in this this industry, and part of it is because, geez, I remember I, I'm I was not born wealthy or anything foolish like that. I will never be wealthy. Um, and that's not a complaint. I, I make enough money doing what I love to cover my bills and not have to worry about rent. I mean, if that isn't awesome, I don't know what is. But um, <clears throat> when people are jumping up and this industry is real interesting in that so much of it is ego-driven. And look at me, look at me, look at me. None of this stuff is overly complicated. When we are dealing with we're dealing with habitat. Ask any farmer how how compl- truly complicated it is to grow a plant. It's not that. Tr- I mean, yes, there's a science to it and all that type of stuff, but for crying out loud, you can explain to a four-year-old child how to grow a seed. Okay. <laughs> and then we are dealing with whitetails. What are whitetails? They're animals. They are not able to think at the same level we are. It's all basic survival instincts. None of it can be hard to find to figure out a bunch of this stuff. You know, trying to find the answer the first time that can be tough. But once a person has found the answer to any of this stuff, explaining it—if you got to struggle with explaining it or make it seem overly complicated—generally speaking, you either don't have a clue what you're talking about, or you're trying to sell that person on how great you are 
and how you need my expertise. And the dirty little secret in this whole darn thing is the people that are managing their ground out there, they are the expert on that ground every darn time because none of us have been there. None of us have been there. We, have, we do not know all the circumstances that are going on on that property uh, to take, start a tangent, and then I'm going to shut up. Many, many years ago, I was managing ground in, uh, in Missouri for an outfitter. I'm driving across a huge CRP field. I mean huge. And, oh, geez, about a quarter mile away, I see a doe and a couple fawns take off running. Huh, wonder what that is. Okay, there's coyote out there chasing them or something? Huh. Don't think much of it. Go down to the bottom there, find a killer stand site um, <clears throat> that day. Come back the next day to set it up. There's deer about a half mile away in that CRP field running away now. What the heck is going on here? I mean, just at, now it actually has got me curious. I go back to talk to the outfitter that night, <clears throat> and I'm explaining it to him. He goes, Steve, you idiot, they're running from you. They're not running from my truck that far. Yes, they are. How do you think the locals hunt down here? Right. Every situation is different. They were scared to death of my vehicles down there. I mean petrified. But I got busted flat out cold by a five-and-a-half-year-old buck that at 15 yards that literally burned a hole in me 20 feet up in that tree, and I had a buddy filming me, and the whole time I'm sitting there silently praying, please don't move, please don't move, please don't move, because I'm going to kill this deer. This mature buck that has busted me cold that is staring at me up in this tree, I did not have a shred of doubt that I was going to kill that deer because they were that tree stand stupid. Nobody hunted that tree stands. These are simple animals, no different than our dogs at home. And by that, I do not mean any disrespect. I respect whitetails more than I respect most people, and I shouldn't probably even say that. <laughs> but it is the truth. Okay? You can train these, these whitetails to accept virtually anything, and you can train them to fear virtually ever, anything. And every single time we are going out in the deer woods, the things we are doing are doing exactly that positively and negatively reinforcing their behaviors. Therefore, we literally train these deer just like we train our dogs at home. And situational specifics, habitat specifics, all sorts of factors are going into this to the point where there is not a one-size-fits-all answer to any of this type of stuff. What works best for me may not work anywhere near as good for Brian. But it may end up working ten times better for George than it ever did for me because we all have our own specifics of our situations and all any of us can do is go ahead and share what works for us. And then it's up to your listeners to go ahead and pick out the things that they think may apply to their properties and apply that. And go ahead and please disregard anything that you do not think is going to work or no matter how much me or someone else stands here and says, Brian, this is the way you have to do this. Brian, if you go out there and you try to do it and it don't work, for the love of God, don't do it anymore. 
And if I'm sitting there near anyone else who's telling you over and over and over and over and over and over again what you're doing is wrong, if what you're doing works for you, who cares what I think? Right. Yeah, that's that's a great point and something that we always focus on for sure here at the Habitat Podcast. We don't try to preach that to anybody, and we we welcome everybody's input because even if it doesn't work at your place, you can always learn something from what somebody else is doing across the country. Well, I'll give you really, really, as quick as I can, one more cheesy story, and then I'll shut up and we'll get started on this. When I was, I grew up, I grew up wanting to be a professional trapper. I hunted as well. Trapping was my passion. Okay, growing up, I started trapping when I was 10, paid for my way through college, thankfully, just before the fur market went to absolute heck. Um, and I will go ahead and jump up on a soapbox for one second here to interrupt my own story, and that is, please, 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 we need to stop being our own worst enemies. When somebody else shoots a deer legally, and <clears throat> as long as it is legal, we got to stop judging. we got to stop beating them up because we're doing the anti-hunter's job for them by doing that type of stuff. Now, we need to be happy for our successes, even when they're not the success you or I may want to have. Um, but anyway, um, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> I was actually, trapping was my thing. I, and there I am some, geez, I don't know, I was probably in about eighth grade at the time, went to a fox trapping seminar. Up in uh, up in Cumberland, Wisconsin, which wasn't far from where I grew up, uh, and there was <clears throat> you actually had to pay to go to this seminar, and I did. I slapped down the twenty bucks, and I watched a guy who caught a hundred and some fox the year before talk for forty-five minutes, and afterwards, a bunch of us are standing around talking. There's an old timer and a couple kids, and the kids keep asking everybody how many fox you catch, how many fox you catch. Finally, the old timer said it ended up being twice as many as the guy who was putting on the seminar. So now us arrogant kids are saying, well, why the heck are you even here? You caught more fox than... I don't care if you didn't catch a single fox last year. I can learn something from you. If mm-hmm. absolutely nothing else, I can learn what not to do. You're 100% right. We can learn from everybody. The whole key is for us to use what I refer to as the common sense test. If it don't make common sense to you, guess what? It's probably wrong when it comes to habitat and deer. Because habitat and deer, they're both, as I said, they're for as incredibly complex as they can be, they're simple and very understandable. No doubt. So, Steve... For any of our listeners, and I can't imagine many of them that aren't familiar with you, but for any of them out there that may not be, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got started, and some of your background? I well, I have a BS in biology and a minor in cartography, which qualified me perfectly to be a computer systems analyst in charge of networking for a large engineering company. Um <clears throat> The thing of it is, is actually what I didn't realize at the time was, well, I did on the biology end of things, but how much the cartography minor was going to help me. It's uh, cartography is map making. I have a minor in map making and actually worked for worked for the first well four years out of college actually making maps. Um, I mapped a good share of the Tungus National Forest in Alaska off of nothing but aerial photography. 
Um, <clears throat> that actually helped me more than I would have ever anticipated when it comes to this type of stuff. Uh, as far as, but then, you know, geez, I, for as good of a job I had and stuff, it's like, this isn't what I want to do with my life. I want to do outdoor stuff. So I actually started making videos. Um, which led me to starting to do seminars because nobody has a clue who the heck you are. Why are they going to buy your video? Oh, well, if you can get some show promoters to pay you to give some seminars, that sure would work out nice. So I started giving seminars. My videos were split between hunting and habitat improvement, so I split half the seminars I gave were on hunting and the other half on habitat improvement. A lot of outfitters go to these big expos. And a bunch of them ended up sitting in on my seminars, and next thing you know, they're asking me if I'd be willing to come out to their places and tell them what to do. And I started writing articles, because, geez, nobody's going to buy videos unless they know who you are, so you might as well start writing articles as well. And I had absolutely no idea how impossible it was supposed to be. Got rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter until I actually, till North American Whitetail and Bow and Arrow Hunting both ended up buying the same month the first articles I ever sold and everything just kind of snowballed. Um, I really don't know how to tell, I mean, I know this isn't what you're getting at, but I really don't know how to tell someone else how to do this stuff because, as I said, I'm quite, I'm quite the success at making videos, aren't I? I made two. <laughs> and I'm pretty much guaranteeing that no one who has ever heard of me has anything to do with those two videos I made to start with. Um, but what I do, I'm, to, to wrap up this boring section, I am, luckily, I've got to the point where I have been doing this, I, I've been able to retire from the consulting end of things, so no one has to worry that when I'm making suggestions here that I'm really trying to sell you on anything. I'm not. I'm at the point in my career where where between uh, all the work I do these days, I do a couple television shows, or a television show, a couple web shows, an uh, article for every issue of deer and deer hunting. And then I personally do a bunch of work on my own Facebook page, stevebartellaoutdoors.com. And what it is is I, mean, I don't sell any books anymore. I've wrote four of them if a person really wants one. Um, I don't sell them personally, though. You'd have to find them on Amazon or something. I'm at a point in my career where I'm trying to say thanks. Here's what I think I've known. You guys all threw me on your shoulders, took me to the dance. Here's what I think I learned at the dance. And that's what I try to do on uh, all my work these days. It's just, I can't promise anything I say is ever, ever 100% accurate, but I can promise I believe it, and I can promise you that I'll tell you when I, when I don't know the, when I realize I don't know the answer. No, I think that's <clears throat> an honest way to do it as well. I, you know, nobody wants to hear anybody spewing out stuff they don't really know, and, you know, if you're an honest guy, and, you know, the stuff you put on your Facebook page, I mean, that's great free information, and there's a lot of it, you know? Well, I, I, as I said, I've been on the other side of this stuff. I'll never forget buying a, <laughs> buying an issue of bow and arrow hunting, and I'm reading this article, and I won't even mention the guy's name. And he's, everybody, every day somebody comes up to me and says, hey, what can I do to become a better hunter? And I say, go do one thing, scout. 
practice your bow, inspect your tree, your equipment, or practice cooking wild game for your family and friends. And the rest of that article was an infomercial on his dang cookbook. Gotcha. And I felt like somebody just ripped me off. It's like, you don't ever do that to people. If this is how it makes you feel, how's it going to make them feel? You know, no. Yeah, to just... Man, if people just treat people the way they want to be treated themselves, this world would be a better place all around. Seems seems pretty simple, doesn't it? I I love it. Yeah. Well, that that is, and then I promise I'll be done. The older I get, I'll, winning a life is easy. Tell the truth. Be who you want other people to treat you as, and just it's it's not that hard. We make it so much more complicated than it really is. And now I'll stop, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> well, one comment on that. Plus, like we talked about before we were recording, I don't even if I was to lie and make something up, I wouldn't remember it. So there's no point in lying. Just be honest. You don't exactly. have to, you have to yeah. remember other bad memories, you know? <laughs> well, as somebody once told me, I ain't got why I ain't got eyes in the back of my head and my memory's shot. I can't I can't afford to lie and live to be old age. Exactly. And well that, put. That describes me to a T. <laughs> but anyway. Well, Steve, I want to so get into. For- you got it. You got it. Yep, we're we're going there right now. Now, starting starting on on a property when you show up, when you used to consult, or or maybe you're just helping a friend out on their property. Um, yeah, I've heard of people who wait a year or two to observe deer movement and, and wildlife before making any adjustments, or I've heard people say, bring the deer to you. You can make all the adjustments you want. It doesn't matter where they're currently traveling. You can make them travel through you know different habitat improvement things right by your stand, et cetera. Um, which side of the coin do you fall on, and, and kind of where do you start with, with your property flow and habitat plan? If you don't mind, I'm going to modify this a little bit. In that Go for it. Is, in, in my opinion, the question isn't so much what do what would I do. The question is, is what should your viewers do? In my opinion, again, as I said yeah, at the beginning, of course. this is all my opinion. Nothing more, nothing less, and everybody's got one, just like we all have a few other things as well. Um, <clears throat> okay, the first question is, is, how well do you know, dear? Because the biggest thing that has helped me over, one of the two biggest things that have helped me over this entire thing is actually trapping taught me the more I know about mink, the more I know about red fox. I'm talking silly, trivial things. Wow, all of a sudden my catch starts going up. It's the exact same darn thing with deer. The more you study deer, the more you understand them. Now, every deer has, a, to an extent, has a personality of their own. But they all generally, well, they're all trying to do the same thing. They're trying to survive. They're trying to reproduce. They're trying to stay comfortable. They're trying to stay healthy. Now, and every once in a while, this may sound silly, but every once in a while, I think they actually, if you really watch them, every once in a while, they like to have fun and just run around acting like idiots. Um, <clears throat> study the stuff. Every single time you find, well, not every time, um, when you're out there scouting off-season and you find that great big rub from last year, why? Why did that buck rub here? 
where was he where do I think he might have been going what was the purpose to this the more you can ask questions and answer the, the huge one for me is when you're out there um, if you if you live in a state that gets snow during the off season after that fresh snowfall go out there try to find the biggest set of tracks you humanly possibly can and follow them backwards for as long as you can um, and I'm suggesting backwards because you follow them forwards and you may actually be bumping that deer and they may be reacting to what you're doing but you're following those tracks backwards and you know they're not this was all this was all what had happened naturally now something could have nudged it sure but generally speaking naturally without any input from you whatsoever and everything's there for you to see follow backtrack those things find that bed when you find that bed squat down in that bed and look around of all the places I he could have possibly betted in this entire world why did he choose this one spot what advantages does he get does it give the more you sit there and ask why that there's that trail going down that ridge okay there's that beaten down cow path going down the center of the backbone of that ridge and then oh there's a faint trail on both sides just down from the lip a little bit you can't always see it but let's say you can right why what is going on there why are there three trails on this single ridge going that are all leading in the exact well wait a minute mr big can go ahead and run the downwind side of just over the edge of that ridge he can use his eyes to scan everything below him he can use his nose to get, to figure out what's going on up on top whether it's whether it's doze he's after or whether he's worried about danger or both now, the more we understand this type of stuff, the more you see, the more you ask why, the more you, this stuff actually makes sense. If you're in, if you're to the point where you believe that you understand how deer are using, how deer generally use topography, if you're to the point where you believe you understand what makes deer tick, I, it's like anything else. Um, <clears throat> the first day. I made I tried to make uh I tried to make maps when I got out of college. I honestly thought I was going to get fired. Right? The first 2 weeks I thought all I was doing was buying time until they figured out I ain't going to be able to figure out how to do this stuff and they're going to fire me. 5 years later I could do it in my sleep. The more you do anything, the better you are when you're out there study this stuff. The more you study it, the more this stuff. I mean, I, I can, most of, and I don't, I stopped, I retired from doing this five years ago. But the overwhelming majority of the plans I did, I mean, we're talking, we're talking well over 500. I never stepped foot on the ground. It was from studying aerial photography, topo maps, and getting a ridiculous amount of information from the landowners. I had a... I had a full three-page questionnaire that they uh, <clears throat> that they ended up filling out, and then then when I when I would generate the plan, what I would when I was going over it with them, I would explain to them that what this is is this is a skeleton match. If I have if I'm telling you to put a doe bedding area right here and 20 yards away, the does are actually bedding there. Please shift that to 20 yards. 
as much as possible, what I do is I take what I believe the deer are doing on that ground that works in my favor. I try to put those things on steroids. The things that the deer are doing at that ground, that on that ground that is not working in my favor. Let's say, let's say it's a 40. <clears throat> on the west side is a great neighbor, and by great, I don't mean that that they do everything I want. I mean just generally a great neighbor. On the east side, oh, they're jerks. They are, and it's not because they're not following my script. They're sincerely jerks. I, I want to do every, and you know, any deer that go, I, I, I don't want deer over there. So, the the movement. If I have if I have bedding on my on that forty, which this is an overly simplistic example, but if the deer are bedding on my forty. And I really don't want them to go to the east. Well, I'm going to encourage them to go to the west. You know, I will go ahead and encourage the things that work for me, you know, or encourage things that worked against me to work for me as much as possible. But generally speaking, what I'm trying to do is I am, well, I can, the first thing I do, one of the first, after getting to know the ground, um, <clears throat> the first thing I do after that is, all right, what areas can I access? What areas can I get to, <clears throat> hunt, and get out of without a deer knowing I'm there? Because if they do not smell me, if they do not hear me, if they do not see me and I don't shoot them, I was never there. Perception is reality to an individual deer, just like perception is reality to an individual person. If I believe that I am going to fail at whatever it is, I might as well not even try because I'm going to fail. If if they don't realize that you're hunting them, you aren't hunting them. Okay. So those are the areas I'm looking for. Okay. Once I've found all the areas that I believe I can get to, hunt, and get out of, now, okay, which of those areas can I go ahead and give deer a reason to pass? Make it a food source? Make it so that they have to get between bedding and that food source to go put a blockade there so so you create the funnel that they have to go through one way shape or form i'm going to manufacture those high odds low impact stands and that generally revolves around taking what the deer are already doing that works for me and putting it on steroids and trying to discourage them from doing what doesn't work for me that kind of sort of answer your question but to yeah. actually answer the question me personally i'm and I, I apologize that this is going to make me sound like an arrogant jerk. I'm going to develop a plan, and I'm going to start instituting it right off the bat. But at the same time, the entire time, I am implementing that plan. I'm going to start with what needs to be done the worst, whatever is going to give me the greatest bang for the buck for my effort. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to work down. If... If a person isn't confident on how deer use topography, how they use edges, how they use these different habitat types, in that in that situation, I would strongly recommend you learn that before you do these things. And you learn. I'm, and I'm talking about how they're doing these things on your specific property. The worst thing I think a person can do is just well. 
there's a lot worse things a person can do. But a mistake I think a lot of people fall into is I want to go ahead and I, I'm going to do some habitat improvement, and I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and improve my property. So I'll go down to the go down to the sporting goods store, grab a bag of seed, run run back home, jump on the tractor, go back to the back corner of that field, that back corner of that field that we've always left fallow. You know, I can tear that up and throw in a food plot. Awesome, awesome. Go do it. Okay. All right. Now I got to put up a stand. All right. Where am I going to put up a stand so that I got a safe wind? Well, this one will work the best. How am I going to get in here? Oh, yeah, that's a great question, ain't it? Find that stand before you ever, ever even think about breaking that ground. You find that stand, you figure out how you're going to get in, how you're going to get out, and then you build those improvements around that. That works out so much more effective for having that safe wind stand. Otherwise... Yeah, I got a food plot back in the back corner of that field. How am I getting there? How am I hunting it? Stuff like that doesn't happen by accident. It happens, well, very, does not happen by accident very often. It happens through planning. Our greatest weapon is not our bows, not our center of fire rifles, not our primitive weapons that can shoot a group of about two inches at 300 yards, our greatest weapons are our minds. And we don't use them anywhere near enough when it comes to this type of stuff. Now, Steve, you've written a lot about the power of sanctuaries. Can you tell us why they're important and how to set them up right? Well, what actually taught me about sanctuaries is all the public land hunting I do. I've, well, my whole life I've hunted public ground. And what I ended up figuring out is that as long as there's heavy pressure, I mean, there's a lot of public ground out there that honestly honestly does not have heavy pressure, um, especially if you're not afraid to go to a different state or so. Um, <clears throat> but in my home state of Wisconsin, growing up, everybody and their brother and sister hunted. And, you, I mean, man, it was, it was it's a war zone out there. The way I ended up figuring out to make public land work is go to where everybody else isn't, and they're all they want a deer drive to me. Um, and that, so when I started doing the habitat improvement stuff, like it, it was same type of deal. I was first couple of years I'm doing these improvements, and yeah, this is great until gun season starts. But as soon as gun season starts, man, everything's fun. Why can't I reproduce what's going on on public ground? Now, and don't take this wrong. I'm not trying to pretend for a second that I was the first person to think up sanctuaries. No, I'm just showing how I envision it um, and the evolution I went through. Why can't, geez, when I'm hunting these public grounds, the higher the pressure, the better the hunting is for me <laughs> by far because I'm going to these areas that no one else will. So what they're all doing is every time they're doing any, they're doing deer dry. Why can't I do that on private grounds as well generally and that's that's what i do and frankly the power of a sanctuary the right sanctuary in the right spot is real hard to over exaggerate quite honestly i think the biggest thing that the overwhelming majority of good consultants do 
for their clients when it comes to habitat improvement. Show them how to hunt their property in a very, 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 very lower impact manner to what they've been doing. Because as I said earlier, you trick them into, you don't see me, you don't smell me, you don't hear me, I don't shoot you, you weren't there. If you can set your property up with stands like that, you can actually hunt a heck of a lot, of, depending on the property, you may be able to hunt a heck of a lot of people on that property while having 90% of that property actually be a sanctuary. And all of a sudden, all those neighbors, we all love to complain about our neighbors. Everybody <laughs> does when it comes to hunting. I don't know what the heck it is about it, but we all do everything perfect, but every one of our neighbors are idiots. Um, well, when those people are going ahead and doing all those things that we think are mistakes out in their woods on the neighboring properties, if our ground is mostly a sanctuary, huh, that becomes just like a magnet to metal. And while every the thing that you see with most people's hunts, I'm talking you own that 40 up north, and that's where you go. Well, that first day is a real good set. That second day is okay. That third day, eh, eh. Man, this, things are starting to go to heck. Right around day four or five, your season's pretty much shot. Because you trashed that woods. When you set up a sanctuary correctly, you can hunt the snot out of that property. And instead of your deer sightings going down and later and later and closer and closer to dark and more and more after dark, instead it turns out to be the exact opposite. Everybody else is sucking pond scum around you, and you're sitting there having awesome hunts. And a sanctuary is a huge key to that. I actually don't, I, I, I don't, there may be, there, there may be a property that I had that, that I've set up that isn't 80 plus percent sanctuary, a deer cover. But if it is, you'd have to remind me because I can't remember what the heck it is. And I've done right, between, as I said, probably somewhere around 500, 500 uh, photo uh, eval plans, I, uh, uh, maybe 200 on-sites, and have always, always had four or five properties that I've done long-term consulting on over the years for different for different clients. It, I, I, I don't see it. I don't see a bigger a bigger benefit than something like this. Steve, and, this is this is Jared here. You brought up a, a good a good point there. Are you are you eighty percent sanctuary then and, and deer cover for the majority, eighty plus percent? What's your average yeah. would you say? Yeah? At least eighty plus percent. Here's what wow. I do. <clears throat> um the way I and as I said, this is just what works for me. What yeah, and, and if you can, can you add like what you mean by by that cover or, or like how you do build that? Perfect. Perfect. That's exactly what we're going to. Great, great point um, or great segue. Anywhere that I can't get into and get out of without them knowing I'm there, that's a sanctuary. Okay, so. What I do is I look, as I said, I go ahead and I study this ground. Okay, what are the deer doing? What aren't they doing? Blah, blah, blah. All right, what areas can I, can I get to hunt and get out without deer knowing I'm there? And, and I mean, are you ever, ever, ever going to get busted? It, it depends on the 
depends on the property and the situation. But I want the very, I'm talking about the top at least 10% lowest impact locations. I need to find them. Anything I can't get into, as I said, that's, that is, uh, <coughs> that's sanctuary. So what it ends up, what it ends up being is I'm looking for, for places that I can, generally speaking, you know, I mean, if, if you got a field in the center of your property, it's going to be the reverse of this. But I'm generally looking at ways that I can pick, pick around at the edges. Um, and by edges, I mean edges of fields, edges of meadows. Just one of the, one of my favorite things to do. You got a road running along your property. Where can I go ahead and make it so all I have to do is go 50 yards off that road and climb up into a tree stand? Because now I I know that I can do some junk between in that 50 yard buffer between the road in that spot so that deer are not going to be between me and the road. Now, are they going to cross the road? Sure, but they're not going to be between. They're going to cross either up or down because I'm going to go ahead and dump a bunch of trees behind me. So now, bingo, that road's running east-west. I'm on the north side of the road. Any south wind I, or any north wind I got is is beautiful because it's going to blow me to the road. And, and yeah, there may be some deer coming from the other side of the road, but I'm going to go ahead and create a nice long 50-yard blockade on, between me and the road, meaning that they're going to have to go, I mean, it's going to have to be either a real strong east or a real strong west of that wind to be able to get winded. Um, find, you can manufacture a whole bunch of low-impact stands. Now, am I going to go ahead and, oh, here's a spot I can jump off 50 yards off the road, so that's where, no. Where, where are the deer crossing along that road? Where are they parallel along that road? Where is the best natural spot I could set up along that road? Okay, that, that's this spot here. All right, now, where's the tree? Where's the tree I can find to go ahead and make it so that that north wind is golden? All right, there's a beautiful tree for me right there. It's still within shooting range of what they were doing naturally. All right, now it's time to get the chainsaw and create a, create a third of an acre opening and go ahead and edge feather around that. I'm going to go ahead and at least a few of those trees I'm cutting out, I'm going to cut off at chest height because, geez, that sure is easy to go ahead and nail with some fence post nails, some licking branches off that, uh, off that uh, stump for years to come. Um, and I want at least in that third, fourth, half acre little staging plot, that I've got right there, I want at least a dozen licking branches on that thing because I not only want it to be a food source, I want it to be a social hub. I want it to become a absolute scraping frenzy of activity there. And now I'm going to go ahead and after making that opening, um, and as I said, we're not we're not cash cropping here. It's not like there can't be some stumps in there and stuff like that. All we are trying to do is create enough food to feed deer, period. Um, <clears throat> we pull that off, awesome. And then after that, even if the food runs out, we still got all these stinking licking branches, and there have been deer scraping like crazy here. They're going to keep on stopping over to check the local coffee shop gossip to see what's going on as well. All right, now go ahead and edge feather around there. 
By edge feathering, I mean in about a five-yard wide band around that opening that I just created, I'm going to go ahead and hinge cut all the small and low timber value trees. Okay. By if, if it's a bunch of big, mature trees, I'll just plain log it. Log a five-yard band around that. Um, <clears throat> because I want to create a living salad bar that is surrounding that food plot. By creating that living salad bar with all that extra regrowth, we have yet another food source there and a privacy fence around our little staging plot. Meaning that that buck that was walking by 70 yards away before that glanced at this to see if there was any does in there, huh, now if he wants to know if there's any does in there, he's got to come and stick his head out in there and, oh, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and leave openings in that edge feathering in the look within safe wind directions within bow range, within bow range of my stand. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so now he actually has to peek his head in there. And he's got all sorts of scrapes to work in there if he wants, um, which is, because uh, I probably will forget to mention this, when you make mock scrapes, I've learned that it really helps to just go ahead and have a licking branch sitting within five, ten yards of it. Nothing else, just a licking branch. Because about 50% of the bucks that I end up having scraping in that area will march right to my mock scrape and tear the snot out of that thing. The other 50%, they ain't touching that mock scrape. They're tearing apart that. They're tearing apart their own scrape just five yards away over here. But it was your mock scrape that actually caused them to do that. Uh, <clears throat> so always, uh, one of the better tips I can give on mock scrapes is always make sure you have extra licking branches in the area. Just bend those suckers down, put them right in the nose level, and a buck where they're going to be passing in the wrong time, the right time of year, they can't help but uh, hit it. Now. Um, to go ahead and put a couple cherries on top of all this stuff now, if we're dealing in a northern state, without a doubt, I'm going to go ahead and put a little water hole in there as well. Um, that can be, I might actually bring a bulldozer in there to clear this area. If I do, I'll use a dozer to go ahead and dig out a little water hole. Um, if it's really rocky or sandy, I'm going to have to put a liner down. But then, if you do have to use a liner, make sure you put uh, a couple inches of rock and dirt over top that liner. In the northern states, I've never had a biologist say, confirm nor deny this for me, but I am thoroughly convinced that in the northern states, the reason that deer love those ponds so darn much is because they have more minerals in them. Um, and yes, that is the case when they are sitting on the bank of a pristine trout stream. I've done it many times. Um, to just simply to try to convince myself if there's some legitimacy to this. Yeah, it doesn't matter how much water you have on that property. If you're in a northern state, when you put in that staging plot, put in a little water hole too. If you don't want to go ahead and, if you're not bringing in a bulldozer, you can go ahead. Heck, I, <laughs> um, I'm doing a Q&A today on uh, Steve Barteau Outdoors, and I know one of the questions was about uh, this guy with this big plastic water tub. Some other guy said, hey, what we use is we just use uh, we, we use bathtubs. <laughs> Go out there, bury bathtubs, throw some dirt in them. Um, it doesn't matter what the heck you use, really, as long as it works. 
But what you want is you want that dirt in the bottom of it because that is adding minerals to that water. Um, and you could even go so far as to now put the last cherry on top, and that is, it varies. I'm not pretending I do this in every single one by any stretch of the imagination. I do it in about 20% probably, if that. Uh, 10 to 20% safe. Go ahead and put two early season dropping apple trees in there. Put two mid-season dropping apple trees and two late season dropping apple trees. May, uh, if you're down further south, um, put in some put in a couple persimmons, a couple pear trees, maybe some chestnuts. The more reasons we can give these deer to stop off at that one spot, the higher their odds are going to be. So now we have whatever we planted in there for for food, and that's most likely in a plot like that, either going to be uh, cereal rye and oats, for me personally, a three-part cereal rye, one-part oats mix, or clover. Um, the first few years I do a plot like that, it is always, 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 always that cereal rye and oats because I'm trying to use the cereal rye to build up the soil. So then I can go ahead and switch over to something like a clover. But you want, in a small plot like that, you want a green that can replenish itself because you go ahead in a high deer density area, you put in a third of an acre of brassicas and something like that, and guess what? That third of an acre of brassicas will probably last you about a week or two a season. And hopefully in there somewhere there's an answer to your question. Yeah, for sure. I think you uh, answered a few questions with that one answer. Thank you for that. Um, I know a few light bulbs went off uh, while while that was going on there. So I, I guess I want to wrap. Go ahead. When I'm when I'm when I'm going off on one of those long <laughs> ang, long don't feel free to interrupt. No, no hey, I I wasn't interrupting you there one bit. That was that was awesome. Um, and I think you really you really put put the button on, or maybe we can put the button on with this the bedding area thing. Um, is that since you're since you're creating the sanctuary to be anywhere of the property that you're not touching, which is the majority of it, which I love, um, are you doing these little food plot, these little clearings that you just mentioned a lot? Are you um, hinge cutting big bedding areas and then not coming in until the right time? I mean, I know there's a lot that can be deemed a sanctuary, right. like. Give me an example of one that's that's on fire that you might, you know, hey, you had a, a nice buck you shot last year or two. Maybe a story that could could button that up. Um, I'll yeah, I'll give you a couple different examples. Uh, one, northern, without a doubt, the better the quality of cover within your sanctuary, it's going to put that use on steroids. Now, the beautiful thing is. You look at them. Well, I, I'm going to I'm going to hit about four different four different things here at once. First off, way too darn many people out there, in my opinion, are beating their heads against the wall when it comes to trying to get mature bucks to bet on their ground. Mature dominant bucks, which virtually in most settings, most all mature bucks are dominant to one extent or another. There are some that are Gandhi. You know, pacifist to a T. As I said, there's there's personalities in this stuff. But most all mature bucks, they want to have whatever they want to have. And they're big enough, 
to be able to take it from the majority of other deer in that area in most settings. Okay, um, so that mature buck, he's being chased by any and everything out there. I mean, predators, us, vehicles, all sorts of stuff is trying to take him out. How did he get to be mature? He got to be mature by finding a way to survive all this stuff. A lot of it revolves around the bedding area. When it comes to does, fawns, and immature bucks, in my experience, it's real easy to get them to act like a puppet on the end of a string for you. Um, when it comes to bedding, they don't care as much. What they care about is being close to their, as close to food as they can be while still feeling safe. And they're when it comes to family groups, you don't have one set of eyes sitting there trying to keep you safe. You got four, six, eight, ten, twelve sets of eyes, twelve sets of ears, twelve noses, you know, out there trying to keep you safe at the same. Mr. Big, for the majority of the year, he's got of deer. Well, for pretty much all of deer season, he's got him and him alone. Okay. He places a very, very, very high premium on bedding safety to the point where it is very rare for me to have, on any grounds I manage, to have does and fawns go long distances on a regular basis to feed. That ain't rare with mature bucks at all because there's a reason he wants, and that's why I was talking about the backtracking. There is a reason he is bedded right there. Of all the places he has to bed, that spot there oftentimes is giving him the very best view of all. And is set up so he can use the wind to cover his backside. And now there's any danger approaching. I'm slipping out of here. Um, in thickets, it's High pressure, it's in the middle of those thickets. Moderate pressure, it's on the ends. Uh, any type of swamp ground, that type of so lakes, rivers. If there's a peninsula going of dry land going out into that swamp ground, check that thing out, man, because that is bedding gold. Same with those islands of uh, <clears throat> islands of dry land out in those swamps. One of the best hunts I've ever had on public ground was hunting islands on the Illinois River because no one was hunting the islands. Everybody was hunting along the banks, and, man, there's all sorts of sign there, but they weren't they weren't leaving those islands till after dark, and they were going to the islands before first light. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, uh, <clears throat> I'll be honest with you. I forgot what we even asked for a question at this point because I've gotten off on 25 <laughs> different tangents, but I think it was... What do we do in the center of these things? Just simply not having that pressure is going to make a huge difference. Now, if you want to put that difference on steroids, go ahead and give them quality cover within there. The longer I do this stuff, I mean, don't get me wrong, to this day, I still think that hinge cutting can serve a very, very, very beneficial purpose. It is a way for a lot of guys to go out there and boom, snap of a finger, you have instant results. Longer I do this type of stuff, though, the more I shift towards logging to do that type of stuff for me. As far as the uh, <clears throat> the hinge cut type type activities, um, because I'm going to go ahead and control the level of regrowth 
simply through how aggressive that logging activity is. And I do think it is better for long-term sustainability. I do not think hinge cutting, hinge cutting a couple bedding areas on a 40 is ruining long-term sustainability by any stretch of the imagination. So please, please don't, don't take it that way. I don't. Um, I have heard people going out and hinge cutting 40 acre sections and there. I'm sitting there thinking, what in the name of God are you thinking, people? But, you know, to, to me, the longer I do this, hinge cutting is more my scalpel, whereas logging is my machete. That's what I get work done with. Um, but I do want to have, I do want to have a fairly high, generally speaking, stem count in there because I'm trying to waste years' time in general. And if I can go ahead and stand on one end of my 40 and see the other end, guess what a deer can do? Now, if I if there's nowhere I can see much more than 50 yards in any one direction, oh, that buck's going to have to work a heck of a lot harder to find those on my ground. And every second he's wasting on my ground is one more second I'm in the game. Okay. Um, and northern grounds, one of the things I found real interesting is you look at the Wisconsins, the Minnesotas, the Michigans, the Pennsylvanias, the New Yorks, of the, the North Dakotas of the world. Um, I'll tell you what, evergreens are a impressive, impressive drawing feature. And I should wrap up something I said earlier, and that is, uh, oh, remind me to wrap up something I said earlier. When it comes to those evergreens, what I'm doing is when the soil works, I'm planting Norway just because they generally have the best results and growth rate for what combination of results and growth rate I'm looking for. But heck, you can use white pine, you can use any type, anything. Red pine is kind of icky just because their branches aren't that great. Um, <clears throat> they don't cut much wind. They're so sparse trees. But uh, densely branched evergreen planted in 12-foot spacing between trees and between rows and then offset those rows. Now, what you're trying to do, the reason that trees lose their lower branches is because they get starved of sunlight. By going ahead and using a 12-foot spacing and offsetting the rows, they tend to retain those lower branches much longer. Okay, um, <clears throat> You can actually kick them further apart yet as well. But in the northern states, that thermal cover can be golden. Some either either going ahead and just plant an acre, twelve by twelve off uh, offset rows, or something else that works really well is well. Let, let's say the north the north side of your ground happens to be happens to be high and it slopes to the south. So this is an ideal situation. You go ahead and plant three staggered rows of those evergreens along the north side of your ground, and you just created a tremendous windbreak. And the, different, the, the line between life and death for these whitetails in northern, in northern settings when it comes to winter survival is so fine that something as simple as doing that right there can save you a lot of deer. Yeah, that makes so, sense. So, so I want, I yes, I do go ahead and focus on creating primo cover inside of these things. That said, I am not, 
I'm not going ahead and beating my head against the wall when it comes to getting Mr. Big to bet on me naturally. Okay, Because if it's so much what the neighbors have, and so many, I see so many people out there literally trying, throwing so many resources at trying to get that buck to bet on them, you're sitting there on a tabletop flat 40. Half mile to your east, there's a 20-acre swamp with all sorts of peninsulas going out into it and all sorts of dry, uh, dry islands out in there to bed. A quarter mile to your west happens to be a ridge. And that ridge offers all sorts of knobs and points for those bucks to bet on and see the entire valley below and you got a tabletop 40. I don't care what you're doing. Unless your neighbors are going to push them to you, those bucks are not going to naturally bet on you because you can't match that. So instead, in a situation like that, there's so much talk about um, uh, dough factories and all this junk. The overwhelming majority of this world is a dough factory because bucks are extremely selective on where they want to bed. When you don't have that that bedding location on your ground, you are not going to, and the neighbors do, you're not going to get that buck to, to consistently bed on you. When you do have that buck bed on your ground, you can consistently blow them out. You can do that by pressure or the other, the one way that people do hamstring themselves so often is by putting doe and young buck drawing improvements around their buck bedding areas. Mr. Big does not want to be pestered by a bunch of girls and girls and kids all day long while he's trying to sleep. Um, that can inspire him to shift. So keep those darn improvements at least. It's hard to make definitive statements like this, but I can't think of a single location I have ever put improvements within a hundred yards of a place where I knew the bucks were, were where I knew bucks wanted to bed. That's how you end up messing up that type of stuff. Focus instead on what I can go ahead and make this ground produce for me. In the situation I just described, it is, in my opinion, pants on head stupid to focus on buck bedding. Why? I got embedded on both sides of me. No, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to slather my 40 with a, in that case, I'm going to slather my 40 with a ridiculous amount of food. I'm going to create a bunch of dough bedding. I'm just going to wait for him to show up. He's either going to be showing up for food or he's going to be showing up for my doughs, but I am going to focus on having that set up so when he does show up, my odds are as high as I reasonably can make it that he's going to pass by this specific stand site right here because he ain't living on me. That means I have lower odds of actually being able to get him, so I need to do things to up the odds so when it does happen, man, I'm golden. But match match these properties to what they can actually produce, and then in your sanctuaries over time, go ahead and make that quality cover in there because no you're going to not on that 40 you're not going to naturally suck him off the swamp or off the ridge but once gun season starts and that swamp is frozen 
and they're doing drives through that swamp, all of a sudden, yeah, he very well may be willing to relocate over to me for for a couple weeks. Um, as far as, uh, oh, and one other thing I have to stress on sanctuaries is I set up every location within sanctuaries that I think are a really good stand site. What I'm doing is I'm hoping, I'm planning on never hunting them. But I, I'm not one of these purists where, I mean, it's based on what I've said, you know how, I mean, geez, I'm talking 80 plus percent of my deer cover being sanctuary. But I take it real serious. But I'm not one of these purists who, to me, the idea of never stepping foot inside your sanctuary, that makes no sense to me at all. For one thing, I need to know whether it's working. How do you figure out whether it's working or not? Well, you, you scout it. Now, I'm scouting it during the off-season, of course, but yeah, I'm, I'm scouting these sanctuaries. Okay? I'm going in there to make these improvements that I just got done describing as far as plantings and cuttings and that type of stuff. Um, and, as I said, I'm setting up, if on that 40, if I've got 30 acres of it, the sanctuary, and there's three good stands in the center of that sanctuary, i got three good stands in the center of that sanctuary. And what I'm planning on doing is never hunting those three stands, but they're there if I need them. So now, now, it, I know, I, I, geez, the banging started, that buck, he's moved in. I know he's moved in because now I'm getting pictures of him. Um, <clears throat> I've got food plots on both sides of my 40. I got pictures of him first thing in the afternoon going into those food plots, and he's coming from the center of my property. Obviously, he's betting on me now. Okay, but geez, he's not hitting this food plot until an hour after dark, and he's not doing it. He's not doing it. He's not. Well, all of a sudden, it's the end of November, and he's—I haven't made this happen yet. And he's like, "Well, I'm going in. I've already got that stand in there. I've got three stands in there, as a matter of fact. Which stand works best? All right, that one's going to work best. Okay, when's my next great deer weather deer?" Movement weather day. Okay, that's next Thursday. The wind's going to be blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's the stand I'm going to. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to be set with at least a half hour of dark left. And now I'm going to sit here until I kill her, until it gets dark in the at the night, whichever comes first. And I'll, to put it in perspective, in that 40, with the scenario I described, those three stands on the inside, one of them would get hunted eh, once every two, three years. Wow. But, so I, I do believe, I, I do believe very strongly in sanctuaries. But at the same time, I listen to Mister Big. When Mister Big is telling me, "Hey, do this to kill me," I'm going to try to force it my way. I'm going to try to force it from this low-impact stand on the edge here. But when he tells me over and over and over, hey, idiot, you ain't going to be able to do it unless you come inside. <laughs> I'm going inside. You know, and that's a big thing to all this stuff for me is I coined a couple of years ago, I coined the term rigidly flexible. Because that's exactly what I am when it comes to this type of stuff. I have a plan for dang near everything. But I am not going to force that plan. When I get new data, I'm always looking for new data. And as that new data comes in, if it tells me to do this, to jump right, I'm jumping right. 
Um, and having those having those couple stands, slam dunk stands inside those. Well, all right. Um, an example of a kill. Uh, how about how about an example of a near kill? There was as I'm talking, uh, the largest buck I've ever shot. I'm looking at him as we speak. He ended up uh, <clears throat> he grosses in the upper 80s. Uh, he is the only buck I have ever in my life said. I am shooting him or no one else. Um, there's many times I've actually tried to hunt a particular buck, but if a big one comes, if something else comes along that I'm interested, I'm shooting it. No, this this season that I'm about to describe, it was him and nothing else. Uh, <clears throat> the sanctuary, I, he was living right smack dab in the middle of the sanctuary. I mean, it, it was textbook beautiful, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to nibble at the edges. I'm going to nibble at the edges over and over, and I'm not even going to morning hunt him because I don't know where he's going to be mornings, and it's too good of odds that I'm going to end up bumping him and boogering it. Nope. I'm sticking to afternoons until we get at least into November, and I'm nibbling at the very, very edges of where I think that there's a chance I'm going to be able to intercept him during daylight because he, this guy he's following the script to the to a T. He's living in the center of my sanctuary, in the center of the hunting property. This this, this is good. This is good. So just and he's not a as I said before, every deer has a personality of their own to an extent. This buck here, he's a homebody. He's six and a half years old. I've followed him since he was three and a half. He doesn't go on these wild excursions. He dominates his home range, period, end of story. And that is a small, and he actually has a pretty darn small home range. Okay. Okay, I should be able to do this. Uh, I nibbled away all the way up until, up until it was right around November 5th. I have not even seen this buck a single time. <clears throat> um, but the one thing I have to worry about is the neighbor to the north. Because he does end up going over there. And now it's the rut. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take a crack. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go right into, I've got to stand right, I mean, right in, it is a gloriously fun set, right in the middle of the sanctuary. It is a nasty, nasty day today. The wind is whipping and it's raining, but it's supposed to stop around noon. So 11 o'clock. I think that I can use this wind and this rain to actually get to that stand without a single deer knowing I'm here. And sure enough, I did. I got up in there, I got settled, and now there I am ranging. The first thing I do when I get up into any and all the stands I get up in are stands I've prepped and hung myself. Um, but still, the first thing I do is go ahead, look around, make sure that nothing, nothing's near me, okay, and then pretend I'm going to shoot in the various directions I'm going to shoot. Because if there's going to be a branch I'm going to hit or something, I want to know now. 
Okay. And then after that, I hang my bow up and I range mark the, the areas where I believe the shots are going to occur. As I was in the middle of ranging, I heard a twig snap. Yeah. Look to my yeah. Look to my right. There he is, sixty yards away, staring right at me. He had no clue I was there until I started doing the ranging thing. I didn't bust him or anything like that. He'd been walking through, um, and he busted me cold. Ended up sitting there for the rest of the day, potent quite a bit to myself <laughs> <laughs> um, because I knew what I'd just done. Any other time of year, I'd climb down right then and leave. But, you know, you you got to stay here. For one thing, you're going to have a blast with what you're going to see, period. Um, but the other, you're you're in the rut now. Right? If he happens to get on a doe, and there's doe bedding right here as well, um, which is what makes this so much fun. If he gets on a doe, she could very easily lead him right back here. No, you know, you... you Feel free to wallow in your own misery, but you're staying. I he didn't come back. I did end up shooting him. Uh, I did end up shooting him uh, during firearm season. Again, nipping at the edge. Um, he it, full hour, and this is what this is what sanctuaries will do for you. This is right smack dab in the middle of firearm season. A full hour before dark, I've been sitting here watching the turkeys that are uh, that were feeding in the corn out in front of me, the cornfield. Um, watching the turkeys, and there's a couple of young bucks out in front of me and a doe, and I look up, and holy man, there he is. Full hour worth left of dark, or before dark. Um, thankfully, I forgot to take the safety off. Because honestly, if, if I hadn't, I would have missed for sure. I yanked on that trigger so darn hard, I almost <laughs> ripped it off the gun. <laughs> I mean, I, I jerked so hard, I wouldn't have been able to hit the sky. It was bad. But it's like, thankfully, I mean, the, the, the nice thing about riding this rodeo circuit for a long time is it's not that you don't get excited. Oh, man, I've done so many excited, stupid things, it's not even funny. I could fill up four of these podcasts with just ridiculous ways of falling on my face. But what the experience does for you is it gives you chill your butt out right now. You're still in the game. Nothing has any idea. That safety issue just saved your bacon. Take some deep breaths. Calm yourself down. And you've killed this deer. So... Thankfully, at that point, he was quartered slightly towards me. So I had about, oh, 90 seconds of jagged breaths, which each, with each one getting slightly less jagged <laughs> until he ended up turning just enough to give me a decent shot, and I was able to drop him at 120. Wow. And what that buck score? Uh, he's upper 180s. Wow. Wow. Uh, gr- gross. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't bother paying attention to that. No. But that that was he was, and that's the one. I don't think I'll ever do that again. <laughs> um, the whole this is the one deer I'm hunting. Yeah, it was it was fun and rewarding, but man, I I, I like just plain hunting too much. 
Yeah, no, we're we're in the same boat. I mean, plus, you know, I don't have an exorbitant amount of mature bucks to choose from here in Michigan anyways. Oh, so exactly. if I get one that's mature coming along, yeah, he's he's getting an arrow for sure. And and just to put things in perspective, I have a sliding scale on this type of stuff. Okay. Uh, what I just described was hunting utopia. The scale I apply for myself on utopia is nowhere near what I apply to when hunting public on public ground. And I, I firmly believe people should shoot whatever they honestly want to shoot and makes them happy. Now, um, you're never going to hear, to me, the most disgusting thing there is out there is spoiled people in situations like me preaching to regular people what they should and shouldn't do. It's like, right. Get real, okay? You're going to tell this person that is lucky to get out three weekends, an entire year on public ground, that if you don't see at least a three-and-a-half-year-old deer, you can't shoot it, and you're not a hunter if you... What the... That is the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my entire life, period, end of story, um, in my opinion. Um, I, I am all for if a state wants to do antler restrictions, that type of... Sure. Yep, but if it's legal, you don't give anybody any grief over what they shot. Um, uh, that said, for me, on public ground, if it's three and a half years of age, I'm shooting it. I, I don't care if it's 100 inches. I don't care if it's 160 inches. If it's three years old or older, I'm shooting it. Just because that is what I believe that is, a, for me, that is a realistic goal. Now, and that's what makes me happy. That said, I guarantee you that same day that I'm on that ground hunting, uh, hunting for a three and a half year old buck, if I see somebody dragging out a year and a half old buck and they're struggling, I'm gonna go over there and help them. And I'm gonna crack, congratulate them for doing it. Amen. Now that's that's awesome. I think uh, you hit the nail on the head there with the, your sliding scale term. I think we all should should have that. And uh, you know, like you said, if it's legal. Go go for it, and if and that was the oh go ahead. If you don't mind, if it's legal and it makes you happy, the other thing that I yep. don't understand, to be brutally honest with you, is these people that are shooting bucks that they're not happy with because they got to tell every they, because they got to tell right. their buddies they shot a buck. Right? Like, no, no, hey, just shoot. Forget what anybody thinks. This is your passion. This stuff is supposed to be fun for you. People don't get to dictate what you legally and le legally can and cannot do that is fun. As long as it's legal and you enjoy it, go do it when it comes to hunting. And do not let any of us idiots tell you any differently. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think we nailed the um, sanctuary bedding area how to hunt them with a with a great buck story type part of the the show so far. So thanks for getting into that, Steve. That was awesome. Good, good. I'm glad I accidentally did something right. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, moving on to the the next subject here. Thank you so much, Steve, for coming on, guys. We will have segment two coming up next week. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. 
If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat property consultation services on there under the land plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction, Sound Barrier Hunting, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.